Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Ophelia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in July in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright devices when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. A full moon is going to greet us as July rolls around. In London, the moon will rise at 22.14, that's 10.14pm in the southeast, and it will set again at about 4am in the southwest. If you're in a different part of the UK, these times might vary slightly. This moon is also referred to as the Buck Moon. This name was coined by the Algonquin people of uh, America, of the US, and it coincides with the time of year when male deers, which are called bucks, begin to grow their antlers. The Algonquin people lived near the Mississippi River, where deer were prevalent, and every year they would observe the deer lose their antlers and then regrow them again in midsummer. This was a very important part of the annual cycle. The moon will meet Jupiter in the sky in the early hours of the morning on the 12th of July. Jupiter is one of the planets visible to the unaided eye and also bright enough to be seen from light polluted areas like London and other big cities in the UK. Without a telescope, Jupiter can be observed as a bright steady point of light in the sky. On this day, the moon will be in the waning crescent phase, rising above the horizon just around 1am in the east. The best time to look for the moon and Jupiter on this day will be from 3am till sunrise towards the east, as both celestial objects will be high enough above the horizon to be seen. So you have to be up really early to catch Jupiter and the moon together. Comet Lemon, which is named after the highest point of the Santa Catalina Mountains, was discovered in 2021. It's now visiting the inner solar system from over 44,000 astronomical units away. At this distance, Comet Lemon takes millions of years to complete one orbit around the Sun. But now, as it's interacting with the inner planets in our solar system, the gravity of the inner planets is changing its path. Its orbital period is also going to be reduced from millions of years to only a few thousand years. And as this comet comes closer to the Sun, the heat from the Sun will start vaporising the comet's icy body. This will form a magnificent tail of dusty particles stretching out beyond the comet. These tails can stretch for millions of kilometres, and when observed from Earth, they're a truly breathtaking cosmic phenomena. Comet Lemon will be closest to us on the 18th of July, when it will be only about half an astronomical unit away. Comet Lemon will be closest to us on the 18th of July, at a distance of only about half an astronomical unit. And an astronomical unit is about the distance, well, it is the distance between the Earth and the Sun which is about 150 million kilometres. So it will be closer than 150 million kilometres to us at that point. And then as the comet comes closer, it will also get brighter, and astronomers estimate it will reach magnitude 7, which makes it visible to sort of mid-sized and bigger telescopes, but still invisible to the unaided eye. It is important to note that the brightness of a comet and the size of its tail are very unpredictable. They depend on the chemical composition of the comet, which is quite difficult to predict. But hopefully, as it gets closer, it will be visible through a telescope. 
While it dominates the summer sky with its size, the summer triangle is not a constellation. It actually consists of three stars, all belonging to different constellations. So Vega, the fifth brightest star that is visible from the Earth, is in the small constellation of Lyra, a musical instrument. This bright white bluish star captures the attention of stargazers as it sits on top of the summer triangle. Deneb is a brighter star in Cygnus, the swan. It marks the tail of the swan as well as the western point of the summer triangle. Alta, the 12th brightest star in our sky, is in Aquila, the eagle. Alta is yellowish white in colour and it completes the triangle's eastern point. It's also notable for its rapid rotation, making it slightly oblate in shape. So it's kind of bulging out in the middle. Alta takes around 10 hours to rotate on its axis, while our sun, for example, takes about 27 days. To spot this magnificent triangle, look towards the east. The three bright stars stand out prominently against the darkness of the sky and are easy to spot even in London, despite the present light pollution. Bright stars in the sky, like the one that make up the summer triangle, are important orientation checkpoints for stargazers. So they're a bit like landmarks. The summer triangle can be used to find north, locate other constellations in the sky, and even locate deep sky objects that are invisible to the human eye. Dim, faraway galaxies, clusters of stars, and nebulae can easily be seen through a telescope or a pair of binoculars. But locating these objects in the sky is tricky, as they are too dim for our eyes to spot, and stargazers rely on these bright stars to guide them. Now, NGC 7027 is a boring name for a rather captivating planetary nebula. With its intricate structure and dazzling colours, it's one of the most popular planetary nebula to observe. NGC 7027 is within the constellation of Cygnus, right by Deneb, the western point of that summer triangle. If you struggle to find it, feel free to use stargazing apps, which you can often get free on your phone. So to find this nebula, locate the summer triangle and the constellation of Cygnus. Not all of the stars in Cygnus are particularly bright, but the brighter ones form a sort of cross in the sky, often referred to as the Northern Cross asterism. The line from Vega towards the middle star in the cross will lead you roughly to NGC 7027. And when you find this planetary nebula, you are finding the remains of a dying sun-like star. So it's at a point in its evolution when the outer layers have spread out across space, making it a beautiful thing to observe. And remember, if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Okay, well, now it is time for the cosmic news section of our podcast. I don't know why I put on this voice during <laughs> this part. Uh, and in my cosmic news voice, I will tell you all about the cosmic news section of the podcast. I'm going into it. <laughs> <laughs> now, in this section, both me and Ophelia bring a cosmic news story to the table. Um, we will tell each other our news stories. And recently, we have been switching it up a bit. So rather than voting on which news story our listeners prefer, me and Jake got slightly sidetracked by by relative measurements of, of meteorites and, and moons. 
Um, and I ended up asking everyone how many moons, how many hamsters they thought could fit across the moon Phobos. Um, so we were, we were very productive while you were away, Ophelia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought I'd just tell everyone the answer if you did vote in the poll. Yeah. Thank you for voting. Yeah. Um, so our question, my question to everyone, was take your average hamster um, and imagine slaying that hamster out across the diameter of the moon Phobos. Um, and how many hamsters do you think could fit across Phobos? Now, I gave everyone options, but would you like to make an educated guess with no parameters whatsoever? So, the diameter of Phobos? Oh, would you like the numbers? I can give you those numbers. Okay. Um, so, Phobos is not spherical. So, it's not a perfect sphere that has a sort of diameter in that way. Um, I think I picked the... Uh, the axis that was 27 kilometers across. 27 kilometers, yeah. okay. So it's roughly 27 kilometers across. Mm -hmm. um, and again, hamsters can vary in size quite a lot, lot depending on the breed of hamster mm. and the age of hamster and how fluffy the hamster is, maybe how well fed the hamster is. But I picked 15 centimeters. Okay. Yeah, how quickly can you do the maths? Do 180,000? <gasps> you saw the answers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, incredibly roughly, you could maybe fit about 180,000 hamsters lengthways across the diameter of the moon Phobos. I hope everyone's happy. <laughs> I'm happy. What about volume? <gasps> volume. Are we blending the hamsters or stacking no, them? No, stacking okay. them. All right, so you want a whole number. Yeah. Because if you think about how many Earths could fit inside the sun, there's the number of whole Earths, and then there's the volume of, of blended Earth. <laughs> you know, because Earths don't stack. Neither do hamsters. There'll be gaps. Yeah. Right. Um, off the top of my head, more than 180,000. Okay. Uh, but I don't know how many. Shall I find out for you? You can do the maths. Okay. All right. Well, while you're talking about your cosmic news, I'll do some maths. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we should now talk about our news stories for the month. Last month. Jake spoke about a recent meteorite discovery. So a meteorite uh, actually crashed through a person's roof and landed in their bedroom. And they mm. found it. They discovered it. That was in the US. Um, and I spoke about some recent findings from the, the HOPE spacecraft, which is imaging the moons of Mars. Um, the meteorite was compared to a hamster. And I was thinking about the moons of Mars, which is where the, the hamster thing came okay. from. Yeah. <laughs> this month, shall we start with your news story? Okay. Sure. Um... When you think about rings going around an astronomical object, what do you think of? Saturn. Saturn, yeah. yeah. Saturn, most famous uh, example. Of course, all of the other giant planets have rings too. Mm -hmm. But there are actually three other sort of smaller bodies in our solar system that have rings as well. Mm. Uh, so one of them is the dwarf planet Haumea. Uh, there's also Chariklo and uh, this third object called Quail. Uh, so Quail is found in the asteroid belt. It was found in the year 2002. So I actually remember uh, when they announced it. And it doesn't just have one ring around it. It has two rings mm. around it. Um, but what's interesting about these rings is that they are very far away from, from the body itself. Um, there is a sort of a distance away from a planet or an asteroid or, or, or an object called the Roche limit. 
And if you are closer to the object than the, than the roach limit, um, then the gravitational pull from that object will actually pull apart um, any anything that's too big around it. So the, the force of gravity from this parent object is bigger than the forces that's keeping a moon or whatever intact. Um, so these two rings were found way beyond the, the roach limits, you know, far out. Um, and so it's a bit of a mystery, you know, what, why didn't these the material in these rings clump together to form a moon, for example, yeah. instead of, you know, staying small and, and, and staying as rings. So, just to, so I can keep track, you're talking about quail, is that how we pronounce it? Quail. Which yeah. is, you're being deliberately vague, but a body in the asteroid belt. Yeah. So a big asteroid, but different people might define it slightly differently. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, some people call it a dwarf planet. Um, it's not officially classed as a dwarf planet yet, mm-hmm. but that might change in the future. Mm. <laughs> and you were saying, are the rings newly discovered or is the distance newly discovered? The rings, the two rings are, mm-hmm. are fairly new. So the first ring was actually discovered in February this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way they found it was through uh, an occultation. Quayle passed by a far away star. Um, and they could see the, the brightness of the star sort of dip uh, when Quayle itself uh, crossed, uh, uh, crossed the star. So this whole event only lasted about two minutes. Mm-hmm. But before Quayle itself um, passed in front of the star, astronomers noticed a little dip before and a little dip afterwards as well. So there was something mm-hmm. else crossing in front of the star. Um, and then calculations and, and models and so on. Um, so that it was a ring. And then there was another occultation that happened a bit more recently, and that's when they found the second ring. Mm. Um, so only in the last few weeks that, that, was, uh, that was announced. That's really cool. Um, do you know which telescope was looking at it during this transit? You might not. The first ring was discovered by um, Hypercam, um, which is a uh, high-speed um, camera that was uh, fitted on the uh, world's largest optical telescope, um, uh, the Grand Telescopio Canarius on La Palma. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, this telescope has a mirror of uh, uh, diameter 10.4 meters, pretty wow. big. And this camera is, is linked to that mirror. Yes, so it was yeah. mounted okay. on the on the telescope. So um, the camera itself is what was recording the uh, the measurements. Mm-hmm. And. Just because we started with Saturn's rings, which are mainly made of ice, do we know what the rings of, of this object are made of yet? They think it's probably dusty. Mm-hmm. Um, probably quite dark as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, you, when you point your telescope, even a large telescope, um, at Kwai, uh, you can't visibly see uh, the rings themselves. Okay, so we've never imaged them. We've only seen the way they block light yes. when it happened to pass in front of a star. Oh, it's good we were looking when we were then. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice, that is really cool. So that's a new discovery of a ring, but there are two other minor bodies with rings. Um, yes. One of them was Haumea, mm-hmm. and the other was Chariklo. Chariklo, yes. And again, can I be annoying and ask you to explain what Chariklo is? Um, so Chariklo is uh, classified as a minor planet mm. um, in this... Uh, in this article, 
Um, so again, this is it's a bit like Quaya. Um, it's not officially called a dwarf planet yet, um, but I guess more studies could, uh, mm. you know, sort that out. And that one's not in the asteroid belt, is it? It's further away. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's further away. Um, so those two um, minor planets, um, their ring systems are are pretty close to the parent bodies themselves. So they couldn't um, these these material couldn't accrete to form to form moons. Mm. Um, but uh, Quaya itself does have a moon mm. uh, called Waywat. Mm-hmm. Nice name. <laughs> and it's um, it's thought that maybe Waywat and possibly other moons around Quaya is what's keeping the rings stable. Um, so that's one possible. Okay. Reason. So not the gravity of of Quaya itself because the rings are too distant from it, but the gravity of those moons could mm. still be interacting with. Yeah, so a bit like how the Shepparton moons uh, around Saturn help to keep the gaps and, and the shape of Saturn's rings. Mm. Um, yeah, so something similar mm. might be happening there too. That's really cool. Um, do you know how big Quaya is? Quaya is uh, about half the size of Pluto. Mm. Cool. Um, so <laughs> ju- just over a thousand kilometres in diameter. Okay, thank you. I like trying to picture it. Because <laughs> um, even though we have... We have pointed a telescope at Quaya. We have no good photos, effectively, mm. do we? It's too dark and too small. Yeah. Um, so nothing very crisp and clear. But I've got an image in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so the two studies uh, were actually actually involved loads and loads of astronomers. Mm-hmm. Um, so around 60 for, for each study. Wow. Uh, so that just shows you know, how collaborative astronomy is. Oh, that's lovely. And how <laughs> complex it is as well. Yeah, yeah. And because these rings are so unique in terms of how far away they are from, from the parent body, we kind of have to rethink how a planet or a, an object um, can form rings around mm. it. Um, so one of the theories of, of Saturn's rings, for example, was that an icy moon got too close to Saturn. It got past the Roche limit and got pulled apart. Um, but this doesn't seem to be the case for for Quaya. So mm, yeah. So there's another way rings can form. Maybe yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I hope we hear more about Quaya in the future. Maybe when they work out where these rings came from, or maybe when they finally decide if it's a dwarf planet or not. Um, but I'm sure we'll see it in the news again. Yeah, hopefully. So that's my story. What's yours? Mm, okay. Uh, well, my new story is also within our solar system, and it's about an observation of a telescope. That's all the similarities <laughs> I can think of. <laughs> Most of our stories involve observations from a telescope of yeah. some kind. My story is about Enceladus, which is one of Saturn's moons, um, and an observation by the JWST, which is NASA's newest space telescope. Um, so starting off with, with Enceladus, it's a moon of Saturn. Do you, do you know why? It's an interesting moon of Saturn. It's uh, it's an ocean world, right? Mm. It's got a thick icy crust, but underneath, uh, we think it has a global subsurface ocean of liquid water. Mm, and exactly it also right. has uh, volcanoes that chase out ice and, and water as well. Yeah, 
Awesome, you got it all right. <laughs> We've actually spent the day talking about ocean worlds with students, haven't we? So, yes, we have. Yes. Um, so ocean worlds are interesting because water is vital for life here on the Earth. And so anything that has liquid water uh, captures people's attention. And Enceladus is, we think, covered in liquid water. So a global subsurface ocean and then the ice is on top. Um, so the moon is about 500 kilometers across, um, smaller than our own moon. And it goes around Saturn in only about 30 hours, 33 hours. So it's got a quick little orbit. It's close enough to Saturn that it's tidally locked. So one side of Enceladus always faces Saturn. And it's also, we think, the most reflective body in the solar system. It's the shiniest. Shiny boy. Shiny boy. <laughs> so that's all great. That's all interesting. But the best thing about Enceladus is, like you said, there's plumes, there's jets, there's like geysers or something happening. Water is shooting up out in between these cracks. Um, on the surface. That was first discovered by Cassini, which is a spacecraft which was orbiting Saturn. It's passed away now. Um, from 2004. <laughs> it's gone. It's plunged into Saturn. It is no more. <laughs> and Cassini imaged these plumes coming off Enceladus and also managed to fly through one of them, um, which was great. It sampled this plume and it, really, it confirmed it was water and also found traces of, of rock particles. Um, which is good, which is interesting, because that means that this subsurface ocean is interacting with the ocean floor, um, with, with like a rocky surface underneath the ocean. Mm. And there's possibly some kind of hydrothermal vent, some kind of volcanic activity happening under the surface, which is heating the water, providing the energy for these jets. Um, which means you have a warm, mineral-rich ocean, which could be a good place for life. Mm. Yeah. So that was me just rambling about Enceladus. <laughs> so that, that's, that's quite old news. That was 2005-ish when that discovery was made, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want some more recent news? Yes, please. Oh, fine. Um, well, on the 9th of November 2022, the JWST looked at Enceladus and observed one of these jets of water, one of these plumes of water coming off the South Pole. Um, and the paper was only published, well, it's not actually been published, but it's been accepted for publication this month. So it is recent news. And what was amazing is the size of the plume coming off Enceladus. Uh, so we think this is probably because of the sensitivity of JWST. It can capture a lot more, more data. Um, but the plume extended over 9,600 kilometers away from Enceladus. 9,600. So uh, Enceladus is about 500 mm -hmm. kilometers yeah. across. So it's about 20 times the, the width of the planet. It's, were you That's trying to do it. that? Yeah, I was trying to do the maths. <laughs> so yeah, this plume is, is spreading out thousands of kilometers away from the moon, um, which is just awesome. Mm. Um, it was taken by, by NIRSPEC, which is the Near Infrared Spectrograph Instrument on the telescope. Um, it only detected water in this plume. Sometimes you can see other, other gases, things like carbon dioxide or ammonia, but here it was only water. But it was the sheer size of it that mm. was exciting. Um, and then the sort of study was looking at where this water goes. Mm -hmm. It shoots off Enceladus. Uh, we know some falls back to the surface, giving us this sort of shiny, reflective moon. This study stated that around 30% of these jets uh, becomes part of the E-ring, the e which Enceladus feeds. Uh, so I guess there's another link. Yay. You were talking about <laughs> rings. I'm going to talk about rings. Uh, Saturn has rings. The most distant ring is, is the E-ring, um, and we think that the water coming off of Enceladus is feeding this ring, 
um, especially because it's zipping around the planet mm. so quickly. And the water doesn't just stay in orbit of the moon. The water is, is going all the way around Saturn, right. almost, if that makes sense. Yeah. So some of the water stays in that ring or sort of around that ring. And then the rest of the water stays within the Saturnian system, within the Saturn system, but not necessarily feeding that specific ring. Mm. Right. Do you know why they only detected water in this uh, case? Is it just because the water can you know, travel further than the ammonia or whatever else that you, you can find in the blue? I don't know, no. I mean, it would have been majority water mm. coming out, so the other chemicals would have had smaller... So it might just be just a sensitivity thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and JWST isn't at Saturn, so mm-hmm. it is much further away compared to Cassini, um, but it is much bigger <laughs> <laughs> and more sensitive. Um, but don't worry, because based on this data, they've now got time again to look back ah. at Enceladus. Um, so they're going to look again next year um, and maybe image the same plume, um, sort of see how that's spread or traveled or image different plumes or see what's happening. Um, with with Enceladus and with these jets, nice. Just on the on the subject of of liquid ocean waters, subsurface oceans, <laughs> liquid ocean water. <laughs> there are no missions currently planned to go to Enceladus in the late stages of planning. We've got two going to Europa, mm-hmm. um, which is a moon of Jupiter, which also has a subsurface ocean. And there are ideas about going to Enceladus because it's also exciting, but nothing sort of something's in the works, but they're quite distant. Mm. Um, have you heard of Orbit Lander? Orbilander. Orb? Is, is, it, is it going to land on Enceladus, hopefully? Mm. Oh. Um, this is a proposed lander, maybe for the late 2030s, um, from NASA. So it's nothing that's happening right now. An Orbilander, because it will orbit Enceladus and then land on Enceladus. <laughs> Terrible name. Uh, no offence, NASA. But, <laughs> uh, but that would be cool if it manages to land on the surface. Yeah. Um, there's also eels. Have you heard of mm, eels? Yes, I have. So this stands for Exobiology Extant Life Surveyor. Um, it's at the moment just a, a prototype of an idea, but it's an idea that if you're going to explore a surface like Enceladus, um, a Martian rover type mm, that's uh, not rover isn't going to work in the same way. It's covered in ice. There's these huge crevices and cracks and jets happening. So eels, uh, like the name suggests, is more of an eel. It's like a big sort of snake rover thing that can drag itself along the surface. Uh, but maybe in the future we'll learn more about the oceans underneath the surface. We'll definitely learn more about the plumes mm-hmm. with further observations from telescopes. That's our two news stories for this month. Remember, if you have any uh, photos that you've taken of the night sky, do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. Mm. I've got a question, actually, yeah. that um, we could put on the, on the Twitter. Mm. How many... Olympic-sized swimming pools can this plume uh, fill in 24 hours? Oh, okay. Are you going to do the maths on that one? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so it's jetting out. It's 9,600 kilometres long. And we know it's 300 litres a second. And Mm -hmm. you want to know how many Olympic-sized swimming pools it would fill? How big is an Olympic-sized swimming pool? I don't know. We'll have to find that out too. We'll put it on a Twitter. Yeah, let's let's know. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I think that's everything from us today. Uh, All that's left to say is keep looking up.